0: This week's episode of We Are Send Network is an excerpt of the June 4th Send Network Gathering. For more content like this, go to sendnetworkgathering.com. Brotherhood, multiplication, restoration. We are Send Network. We're a family, planting churches together. Join us as we hear from leaders of this movement from across North America and discover what it really takes to plant churches everywhere for everyone just so you know, a little bit of my background, I just add a couple of things maybe to what Charles has just shared. So I've actually worked for the North American Mission Board now for over 20 years, which is hard to believe. But uh, 17 of those years, uh, I was a church planting catalyst. So uh, about five years in Wichita, Kansas, and then about 12 years in Kansas City. And then about three years ago, I took a new role uh, at the North American Mission Board that we're just calling director of bivocational church planting. So Uh, normally when I share that, uh, someone will ask, well, what does that even mean? (laughs) So I'll usually say for me in this new role or this role three years ago, um, it's kind of about two big rocks in my mind. The first one is it's really about for me rethinking vocation. So in other words, I'm convinced that we need to help people in our churches understand that regardless of what God's called them to do in the marketplace, they're in full-time ministry. So in other words, I think we need to kind of blow up or at least diminish the sacred-secular divide as it relates to calling. Uh, Just really rethink vocation, help people see how does their calling in the marketplace fit into or contribute to the mission of God. So part of this role for me, even before we talk about bivocational or sometimes we use the language of co-vocational church planning, I think we need to take a couple of steps back and, and think differently about vocation. And then the second big rock with this role is I, I'm convinced in an increasing missionary context, we actually need to rethink church planting on some level. So a little phrase I use all the time, like I say, we need to help church planters think less like a pastor starting a Sunday morning worship service and more like a missionary engaging a context. So for me, I just think in a, in a missionary context, we need to start with missionary behaviors and activities and, to, and then get to the Sunday morning gathering instead of starting with the Sunday morning gathering. So just a little bit of kind of my background and my, a little bit of my bias, you might say. But today, I, we wanna focus on something just a little bit different, uh, as Charles has shared, really talking about what does it look like in, in this kind of era of pandemic to uh, think about starting smaller expressions of church and, and to get us started. I want you to consider this question here on the screen. If your church was unable to gather in groups larger than 50, what would your church look like? So just think about that for a moment. If, if some, somehow someone told you you couldn't have a group larger than 50, maybe you even say it couldn't be larger than 25, what would your church look like? Or a couple of follow-up questions might be this, how would it shape the way you think about church? So how would it shape the way you think about church in general but also how would it shape the way you think about your church specifically? And then consider a couple other follow-up questions here. How would you organize? If you couldn't meet in groups larger than 25, or let's say 50, how would you organize? How would you organize for worship? How would you organize for mission? And how would you organize for discipleship? Now these questions, here's, here's why I ask these questions. These questions have been prompted by the last several weeks. I have done a lot of reading and listening to resources people have put together about helping the church uh, kind of re-enter is a phrase a lot of people use. Sometimes people have used the phrase of reopening, which isn't really one of my favorite phrases because the church never closed. But you get the point. There's lots of conversations, lots of articles have been written. I've listened to a couple of podcasts about how do we help the church return to the Sunday morning worship service. Well, all of that that I've, I've read and listened to is very helpful. But one of the things I've recognized is the vast majority of the helps have really been just about how do we return to the building? Or in other words, how do we return to corporate gatherings, which are important? But it's those conversations have really been about how do we space out our services? How do we clean and disinfect in between our services? How do we space out the people? Uh, how do we lay out our meeting space? And while all of those things are important, I've had conversations with other church leaders that have actually said, look, I want this time to force me to think differently, not just think differently about how do we gather on Sunday morning, but how might we need to think differently about church, mission, and discipleship. So that's what I want us to do in this breakout. I, I want to just provide Uh, A few ideas to get you thinking about uh, is this a time for us not just to re enter, but to reset, to actually think differently about church mission and discipleship? And to do that, I want to share with you three words or phrases. These are interrelated phrases or interrelated words, but I am convinced that these three ideas or concepts are vital, absolutely crucial for the future of the church in North America. So here's the three little phrases, missionary nature. The second word is empowerment. And the third little phrase is smaller expressions. So I want us to take just a few minutes and kind of unpack each of these words or phrases. And then we're going to kind of wrap things up with some possible next steps. So let's talk about the first one, missionary nature. So I'm actually convinced, and sometimes I'll say it like this. It's kind of a silly way to say it. But I'll say if you've been churched for a very long time, I'm convinced that there are some deeply held assumptions that we may need to unlearn and relearn. I think there there may be some deeply held assumptions around several what I consider uh, paradigm shifts, the way we understand church, mission, leadership, uh, even discipleship and evangelism that we may need to think a little differently about. So I'm actually convinced there's probably a dozen of these paradigm shifts. But the single most important, most foundational paradigm shift that I think we need to have that really sets the stage for everything else we're going to talk about uh, in this breakout. But also, I would say I think this is foundational to really just about anything that ails the church in North America today, I think in some way is connected to or can be tied back to this first paradigm shift. And this first paradigm shift is what I call recapturing the missionary nature of both God and the church. So hang with me here for just a couple of minutes. I wanna give you some kind of background, some some foundational uh, ideas here, understanding both the missionary nature of God and the missionary nature of the church. And then I hope you will see how I, again, am convinced this is absolutely foundational to every other way that we need to kind of rethink church mission and discipleship. So. It's kind of two part, it's kind of part, part A and part B, that it's about the missionary nature of God and the implication that has on the way we understand the nature and essence of the church. So first off, let's talk just a little bit about recapturing the missionary nature of God. So there's actually a couple of really helpful ways, I think, just to be reminded that God is a missionary God. One of the ways to, to be reminded is just to, to examine what is called the grand narrative of scripture sometimes people use the language of meta-narrative, and all that means is it's the overarching story of scripture. So from Genesis to the book of Revelation, the overarching grand narrative, common thread that runs through every book of all 66 books of scripture is that God is a missionary God. God is constantly redeeming and reconciling all of creation back to himself. So just, you know, and sometimes it's, it's easy to just forget that the overarching theme is all about God's redemptive purposes. It's all about God's mission. Because sometimes, you know, we will teach or preach on a particular verse or a particular chapter or sometimes just a a particular book. And it's just easy sometimes to forget that the overarching story is all about God's mission. So one way just to be reminded that God is a missionary God is to re-examine the overarching story or the grand narrative. But I think another way that's a little more concrete and you might say a little more practical is to examine what I call the sending language in Scripture. There's this amazing, beautiful theme in Scripture from Genesis chapter 12, where God calls Abram out and sends him to be a new nation, to be a new people, all the way to Revelation chapter 20. Over and over and over again, God is constantly calling men and women out and sending them to participate in his redemptive purposes. So let me just give you a couple examples, and then we're gonna talk about why does this matter and, and how does this connect to the church? So let me give you a couple examples. First off in the, in the Old Testament, just, just so you recognize how huge this theme is, there, there's this Hebrew verb in the Old Testament uh, that we translate to send. It's used 800 times in the Old Testament, and 200 of those 800 times it's used with God as the subject. In other words, it's, it, it is God who commissions and it's God who sends. So we see this sending language in all the historical books of the Old Testament. We even see it in the poetic books of the Old Testament, but it's especially prominent in the prophetic books of the Old Testament. In fact, when you think about the prophets of the Old Testament, really, they were first and foremost men called and sent by God to participate in his purposes on, in some way. Well, I just want to give you a couple examples, and then once again, we're going to talk about why does this matter, or why is this important, but probably the most well-known sending language in the Old Testament, and some of you are probably already thinking about this, it's Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. I mean, Isaiah Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, I love sharing this as one example of those 200 examples in the Old Testament, because most people are familiar with this passage. But another reason I like to share this is that Hebrew verb is used twice in this one single passage. So let's read it again, very familiar to all of you. But Isaiah says, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. So again, just get catch the sending language here in this passage the Lord, Isaiah says, the Lord is looking for someone to send. He's looking for someone to send into his redemptive purposes. God's got a plan of redemption. He's looking for, there's a is there, there's a piece of his plan. He's looking for someone to send into those purposes. And Isaiah hears that. Isaiah, in his sins, kind of raises his hand and says, here am I, send me. Powerful passage. But it Another reason I like to share this is just one of those 200, one of 200 examples in the Old Testament is because of something that happens later in the book of Isaiah. So get this. This is Isaiah chapter six, verse eight. The Lord is looking for someone to send. Isaiah says, here am I, send me. The Lord calls him out and sends Isaiah. And then later in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is actually reflecting on the things that God has sent him to do. So it's interesting. Some Old Testament scholars referred to these things that God has sent him to do as redemptive deeds. And depending on how you break this out, there are seven or eight of these redemptive deeds. So again, think about this. And we're going to read this passage in just a moment. But Isaiah has sent in Isaiah chapter six. And then in Isaiah chapter 61, he's like listing the things that God has sent him to do. The other thing that's fascinating about this passage is that every one of those redemptive deeds is dependent upon or flows out of that Hebrew verb. Now, most English translations, it renders the verb once and then it just lists the deeds. But I want to read it here in just a moment where we go back to the Hebrew verb he has sent me every time before one of those redemptive deeds. And I do this just because I think this is an incredibly powerful passage of Scripture in the Old Testament. But also, I just want to share this as one example of the old in the Old Testament of sending language. So Isaiah chapter six, uh, 61 verses one, two and three. And again, the other thing that's interesting about this passage, and if you are not already thinking of this, you will as we start to read it, is this is actually the passage that Jesus makes personal application to his own ministry in Luke four. So remember in Luke four, where Jesus goes into the synagogue and they unroll the scroll and they read a passage. And in a sense, Jesus says, that's me. It's being fulfilled today in and through me. Well, it's Isaiah 61. So in a real sense, Jesus makes this his personal mission statement. So here's the passage. Again, I'm just sharing this as an example. And then we're going to talk about why this matters. So Isaiah chapter 61, verse one, Isaiah says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And then Isaiah says, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the captives. He has sent me to release from darkness the prisoners. He has sent me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And there's more to the rest of that passage there. He has sent me to comfort all who mourn. He has sent me to provide for those who grieve in Zion. He has sent me to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. He has sent me to bestow on them the oil of joy instead of mourning. And he has sent me to bestow a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Isn't that a powerful passage? I mean, just a beautiful, I I would say, not only are these redemptive deeds what God has called and sent Isaiah to do, but I would say these, this is what God has called and sent every one of us to do. But I hope you hear in this language, he has sent me, he has sent me, he has sent me. So the Old Testament is full of this sending language. God is a sending missionary God. Then when you move into the New Testament, it's just as prominent. You see it in all the Gospels, you see it in the book of Acts, you see this language in all of Paul's epistles. But let me just give you one example in the the New Testament. The best example is probably the Gospel of John. So think about it like this. The Gospel of John opens with the incarnation. John chapter three, verse 16 and 17, God the Father sends the Son. I would say that is the ultimate sending, is it not? So the Gospel of John opens with the incarnation. Then it closes with John chapter 20, verse 21, where Jesus says, just as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Well, in between those two verses in the Gospel of John, nearly 40 times, Jesus refers to himself as the one sent by the Father. So here's what we see in the New Testament. We see God the Father sending the Son, God the Father and the Son sending the Spirit, and God the Father and the Son and the Spirit sending the church now why does that matter why why is it important that we recapture the grand narrative of scripture and understand that god is a missionary god why why does it matter why is it important that we survey the sending language in scripture throughout the old testament and the new testament to see that god is a sending missionary god here's why i think it's important the nature and essence of the church is rooted in the missionary nature of God. In other words, if God is a missionary God, and he is, then we as his people are missionary people. Here's my favorite way to say it. The church doesn't just send missionaries. The church is the missionary. Now, just Pause for a moment on this statement. I hope you recognize this changes everything. This will inform, ought to inform, and shape the way we think of evangelism and discipleship and church and leadership and structure. This ought to change the way we discover, develop, and deploy people. The church doesn't just send missionaries. Now, we do, we send and support missionaries, and that's a good thing but the church is the missionary. So when it comes to paradigm shifts, when it comes to completely rethinking or unlearning and relearning, for me, there are two underlying paradigm shifts relating to this statement. There is both an individual paradigm shift, but there's also a corporate paradigm shift. So what I mean by the individual paradigm shift, I mean, the best way to illustrate it is just if you asked everyone in your church, what is or who is a missionary 99 percent of the people would say the missionary is the paid professional that we send to foreign lands or faraway places they do not see themselves as a missionary so the first paradigm shift that has to take place as it relates to the missionary nature of the church is people need to understand they are a sent missionary person god has sent them where they live for a purpose. God has sent them into the workplace for a purpose. God sends them into social spaces that they inhabit throughout the week. So they need to have a paradigm shift in the way they understand their own identity, that they are a sent missionary person. But the second paradigm shift is the way we understand the church corporately. So in other words, we need to understand that the church collectively is also a missionary entity. So I want to share with you just to drive this this kind of idea of a paradigm shift corporately home a little bit is I want to share with you the way I think most people understand the church today. And again, I I hope as we talk about this, you'll see, oh, yeah, no, there is some unlearning and relearning we need to do here. So this first little description of how many people in North America understand the church today comes from a theologian by the name of George Huntsberger, and he calls it the Reformation heritage view. So these are actually Huntsberger's words, but I think this uh, summarizes it really well. Here, here's the way Huntsberger frames a way many people understand the church. He says Protestants have inherited a particular view of the church from the reformers, which emphasize the right preaching of the word, the right administration of the ordinances and their proper exercise of church discipline. Now, let's pause there for just a moment. All three, all those things he lists in that statement are wonderful. Important vital things, right? I mean, I want to say two thumbs up to the right preaching of the word. But the issue here that Huntsberger would say is that coming out of the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, this is the way we've kind of defined the church. Now, these are all very important and necessary things, but the question is is this the way we want to understand the nature and essence of the church? Well, I would say no. In fact, I would say, I think these three things that historically we have called the marks of the church, they were kind of been like the three ways we would define what's a true church and what isn't. Um, it, I would say this is actually a, a very inadequate, you might even say a woefully inadequate way to define the nature and essence of the church, even as important as those three things are. So here's why this is an issue to look at the next slide is that this view of the church has left us with an understanding that the church is a place where certain things happen so in other words if someone were to say hey brad what is the church unfortunately for a lot of people would make a, a perfect sense if i said oh the church is that place we go to one day out of the week to hear the word rightly taught to participate in lord's supper and baptism and we don't hear a lot about uh, church discipline nowadays, but let's go ahead and throw that in. And the proper exercise of church discipline. Again, all of those things are important, but is that the way we want to understand the nature and essence of the church? If it leads us to understanding the church as a place where certain things happen, then I would I would say that's problematic. Now, I would say even though there's a lot of people that still kind of understand the church like that today, uh, I would say there's actually a little variation of that. That people still understand the the church as a place where certain things happen but they're different things. So the way I would say most people today understand the church, I would call a contemporary variation view. And here's the way I would say it. The most prevalent way people in North America understand the church today is that as a vendor of religious goods and services. So let's look at the next slide. Just to unpack this a little bit more. From this perspective, members are viewed more as customers for whom the religious goods and services are produced. Churchgoers expect the church to provide a wide range of religious services, such as great worship music, preaching, children's programs, small groups, parenting seminars, and on and on and on and on and on. Once again, all of those are important things. Nothing wrong with anything listed in that second sentence. The question to ask, is this the way we want to understand the nature and essence of the church? Well, if it's not, that is being a vendor of religious goods and services, then what's the alternative? Well, I don't care what language you use. um, I just call it a missionary people view. And here's what I mean by that. The alternative vision to understand the nature and essence of the church is to see the church as a called and sent people to participate in Jesus's redemptive mission. So in other words, we are a gathered and scattered people. So let's just, again, unpack that a little bit more in the next slide rather than seeing ourselves primarily as a sending body, because again, we are a sending body, we do send and support missionaries, but rather than seeing ourselves primarily as a sending body, we must see ourselves as a body that is sent. The church still gathers, however, the difference is we don't simply gather for our own sake, but instead for the sake of others. So in the most simple way to, describe this, I would say we gather when we really understand the missionary nature of the church, that we are a sent missionary people, we will gather to celebrate what God's doing the rest of the week, but we'll also gather to be equipped to be sent back out. So we are a called and sent people of God. We are a gathered, and of course we gather, right? We are a gathering, worshiping community, but we'll gather to be equipped to be sent back out. So last thing on this first little idea is I want to just to drive this home. There's a little image that I like to use that I've just noticed has really helps people understand how important it is for us to recognize we're a sent missionary entity. And it's a little missiological tool called cultural distance. This is super simple, but I've just again, I've just discovered this really helps to drive this idea home. Here's how it works. It says to grasp the importance of the church as the missionary. Consider the idea of cultural distance. This is a tool that we can use to discern just how far a person or a people group is from a meaningful engagement with the gospel. So here's how it works. Every one of those numbers you see on that line, M1, M2, M3, 4 it could go to 5, 6, 7, 8. Every one of those numbers represents a cultural barrier. Well, all a cultural barrier is, is anything that gets in the way of you fully understanding another person and ultimately having a meaningful conversation with them and, and hopefully ultimately sharing the gospel. Well, there's lots of cultural barriers that make that difficult, make it difficult for us to really understand that other person. The most obvious cultural barrier is language, but there's a lot of other cultural barriers, other things that can kind of get in the way. And I just listed a few of them on the bottom of the slide. So of course there's language, their beliefs, traditions, their family background, their history, their cultural experiences, their past religious views. their like current religious views. All of those are different cultural barriers that make it more difficult to understand where another person is coming from. All right. So here's why this is significant for this idea of the missionary nature of the church. If we look at the next slide. It simply says, well, here, before we read that, let me just share with you what I mean with that little image. So you'll notice there's a circle and there's a little image of a church building. Well, I know this is a generalization, this isn't true of every church, I know this probably isn't true of your church, it's only true of the church down the street, but I would say the vast majority of churches in North America, again, I know it's a generalization, but the vast majority of churches in North America, they operate between M0 and M1. So M0 is when there's no cultural barriers. So in other words, everyone looks the same. They kind of have the same color of skin. They speak the same language. They come from the same social location in regards to education and income and housing. So they kind of operate between M0 until they kind of like come up against that first significant cultural barrier at M1 and they kind of stop there. So I would just say lots of churches in North America, they live in that circle or that bubble between M0 and M1. Right. Here's why that's important. Remember, it is we who are the sent missionary people of God, which will sometimes mean we must go to where people are. If we fail to go to the people, then to encounter the gospel meaningfully, they must come to us. This is the inbuilt assumption of many churches. Now, I could in that slide right there, I could say this is the inbuilt assumption of the vendor of religious goods and services. So, in other words. You know we think that if we get everything just right in that bubble, if we have the the, the best preaching and the best building and the best church sign, uh, the best worship music, the best children's program, that we can motivate people to cross those cultural barriers and come be with us between m0 and m one. So this is the inbuilt assumption of many churches, and it requires that the non-believer do the cross-cultural work to find Jesus and not us. And then here, the last slide here, on this just really drives us home. And make no mistake, for many people, just coming to a church service involves some serious cross-cultural work. Now, if you don't remember anything else we talk about in this breakout, I hope you'll remember this next sentence. When we ask them to come to us, we are in essence asking them to be the missionaries. See, when we lose the missionary nature of the church, then in some cases, we become a vendor of religious goods and services. And we try to attract people to cross the cultural barriers that come be with us and be like us. But when we recapture the missionary nature of the church... And we see and understand that individually and collectively we are a sent missionary people, then we will understand God has called us to go. God has called us to cross the cultural barriers to go regardless of where people are. So I just hope you see just the significance of this paradigm shift. I'm convinced this is so foundational. The the recapturing the missionary nature of the church. Will change everything else—the way we think about church mission, discipleship, and evangelism—and um, and I think this will inform the other two words or phrases we're going to talk about. That we're going to talk about in a much briefer, <laughs> a much briefer time frame. But but before we move on to those other words and phrases, I just want to ask you a couple of questions. Just throw them up here on on the screen. Um, and, and the main question I want you to just pause for a moment and consider is in light of kind of this recapturing the missionary nature of the church, what tensions are you currently experiencing? I mean, when when you think about rethinking church, when you think about rethinking the missionary nature of the church, is this causing any any tensions? And a follow-up question is, what are the implications of this shift on your life personally, but also what are the implications of this shift on your church? So t- Take take just a few seconds and just just process that for a moment as it relates to this, I I would call a very foundational paradigm shift. You have been listening to We Are Send Network, a resource of the North American Mission Movement. For more information about today's podcast and other relevant resources, visit sendnetwork.com.